If you would please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. As we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in uh, Genesis 26. We're uh, going to be breaking up the, uh, the reading of the chapter this morning to, to correspond to the two main points of uh, the sermon. And so first, uh, we'll be in uh, verses 1 through 11. And uh, the main point there will be, like father, like son. Like father, like son, and then when we come back and uh, read the second chunk of the chapter beginning in verse 12, the second main point will be, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So let's look first to the, uh, the first 11 verses here of Genesis 26. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham, So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven." And give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say, My wife thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said... I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now it has been said before that the salient feature of Isaac's life is that it has no salient features, and that he lived out his 180 days in quiet with little to make history. And if you compare his life to the life of Abraham or to the life of Jacob or the, uh, the 12 patriarchs after Jacob, there might be something to be said for that sentiment. This chapter before us this morning shows us Isaac as the heir of the Abrahamic promises. It shows us Isaac walking in many ways in his father's footsteps. There's so much here that mirrors the life of Abraham, both for good and for bad. We see here in these verses the uh, nomadic lifestyle of Isaac, right? Reminiscent to that of Abraham, such that when there's a famine in the land, he, he navigates elsewhere. In Abraham's day, there was a famine back in Genesis chapter 12, and this was the driving force of him going down 
to Egypt. Now here in this case, there is a famine, and Moses distinguishes this from the famine that had occurred earlier in the days of Abraham. And here, this famine drives Isaac from where he is living over to sojourn in Gerar, which is on the southwest coast of of the land of Palestine, and Abimelech is there as the king of the Philistines. Now, if you'll recall, Abraham himself had also sojourned in Gerar back in Genesis chapter 20. And at that time, a man also named Abimelech had been king there. Now, it seems most likely that these are, these are two different Abimelechs. Abraham's time in Gerar was at least 75 years before Isaac's time in Gerar. Abraham seems to have been about 100 years old when he went to Gerar, and that was seemingly just prior to the birth of Isaac, and Isaac's sojourn in Gerar is now after the death of Abraham. And it's not entirely certain, but it is also possible that this name Abimelech may be more than simply a name, may have been somewhat of a a royal title in as much as it means something like father of the king or my father is king, something to that effect. And it may have been a royal title for the king, similar to to Pharaoh in Egypt or uh, the later title Caesar in Rome. So it may not have been simply a, a first name. But the point here is Isaac goes and sojourns in Gerar. And notice in verse 2 that he is explicitly forbidden from going down to Egypt. It may well be that Isaac was planning to go there. In a time of famine, that was where his father had went. The Nile Delta would be a a well-watered place, likely place to go in a time of famine. But Isaac is forbidden by the Lord from going there. Instead, he is to remain in the land of Canaan, and Gerar was fair game, being a part of the land of Canaan, so he could, could stay there. And the Lord goes on to promise there that he would be with Isaac, that he would bless him, that he would give the land to his descendants, and establish the oath which he swore to Abraham. And this is, this is hearkening back to, to Genesis chapter 22, where we were several weeks ago, specifically Genesis 22, 18. In verse 4, there's this reference to all nations being blessed in the seed of Isaac. And in verse 5, there's a reference to Abraham's obedience to the voice of the Lord. And both of those things are combined together in Genesis 22:18, where the Lord said to Abraham, after he had offered up Isaac, he said, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that specific phrase about Abraham obeying the voice of God is in reference to Abraham obeying the voice of God to take Isaac and to offer him up. Now, obviously the Lord intervened at the last moment, but Abraham was obedient to the Lord's voice in that. And of course, as we saw there, uh, when we were in Genesis 22, that language of Genesis 22:18 is picked up by Paul in Galatians chapter 3, that passage that our brother Tom read for us this morning, where Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, but rather, uh, rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And so Paul argues from that use of the singular seed, as opposed to the plural seeds, that this covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 22 is ultimately pointing in reference to Christ. And 
Now, what we see here in Genesis 26 is that that promise given to Abraham in Genesis 22 is now transferred to his son, to Isaac. And even still, there is a particular seed. Though there would be a great nation coming from Abraham, coming from Isaac, there is a particular seed, a particular descendant in whom the nations would be blessed. And that seed is Christ. And so just as the singular in Genesis 22:18 pointed ahead to Christ, the same is true here in the reiteration of that oath, the reiteration of that promise is this is pointing ahead to Christ. And indeed, it is in Christ that all nations are blessed because men and women from every nation will be saved through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one through whom the nations are blessed. And the only way to be blessed through Jesus Christ is to repent and to believe. The way to be blessed through Christ is to receive him who went to the cross to be a curse for us on the cross, taking the curse which we deserved because of our sins. The way to be blessed through Jesus Christ is to believe that three days later God raised him from the dead so that we might trust in him as the one through whom we are justified. The way we are blessed through the seed of Isaac is because Jesus Christ has accomplished our redemption. The way to be truly happy, the way to be truly blessed is to trust in Jesus Christ, this promised descendant of Isaac, promised descendant, the promised seed of Abraham. Now, if you have more questions about what it means to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus so that you can enter into this blessed company from all nations, you can talk to me about that after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you love here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to enter into this blessed company of all nations who are blessed through the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 5, though, we see a reference not only to that particular act of Abraham's obedience in offering up Isaac, the willingness to offer up Isaac, but we also see there that Abraham kept the Lord's charge his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Now in this we, we observe that even though the law of Moses would not come for hundreds of years, yet still God had revealed his will and his commandments to his people. And Abraham, back in Genesis 17:1, had been commanded to walk before the Lord and to be blameless. And Abraham did that by obeying God's commandments. He wasn't flawless in this, certainly, but he was faithful. Abraham knew God's will, and therefore he walked in obedience to the Lord and kept his charge. And certainly uh, we see evidence of this later on in the book of Genesis, that the patriarchs certainly knew God's will. They knew God's commandments, even though, again, the, the written law of Moses had not yet been given. And so, for instance, in Genesis 39, when Joseph was interacting with Potiphar's wife, he said to her, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He knew that to do what Potiphar's wife was suggesting would be a sin against God. The patriarchs knew the moral commandments of God. Abraham kept the Lord's charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. And the Lord seems to hold this out here as an encouragement for Isaac to follow in his father's footsteps in this regard. As if to say, Abraham did this, now you should too. What we find, however, 
is that Abraham walked in his father's footsteps in a negative regard. As we uh, look at the verses that follow as Isaac is there in Gerar, when the men there ask him about Rebekah, he tells them that she was his sister. Now, if you recall, Abraham had pulled this kind of stunt more than once. He'd done it once in Egypt and once in Gerar. And Isaac now does the same thing for the same reason, for fear that the men of that place would kill him on account of his beautiful wife. Now notice kind of the juxtaposition of what's going on here in the narrative. The, the Lord had just promised Isaac that he would bless him. He had just given him the assurance of the Abrahamic promise and that he had blessed Abraham for his obedience. And Isaac should have been resting and trusting in the Lord in that. But instead of resting and trusting in the Lord's promises by doing what is right and by telling the truth, Isaac shrinks back in fear and tells a lie to keep himself safe. Now, in the Lord's kindness, Rebecca never gets taken into the royal harem as Sarah did, but when the king saw how Isaac and Rebekah behaved together, he knew that they were not brother and sister. Now the word that is translated there by some of our translations as, as caressing is sometimes translated as, as laughing, and it does seem to be related to, uh, to the word for Isaac's name, which Isaac's name means he laughs. So it's a little bit difficult to discern exactly what the king saw, but he certainly knew that this is not the way that siblings interact. And so he accuses Isaac of lying about their relationship, and Isaac owns up to it and tells why. And verse 10 is, is interesting in that it bears witness to the fact that even the godless Philistines knew that adultery was wrong. And then we have Abimelech issuing this order that anyone who touches Isaac or his wife would be put to death. And what we see in this is that despite the sin of Isaac, the Lord was still blessing him. The Lord was still keeping him safe. Isaac didn't deserve this kind of grace or help, but the Lord was blessing him nevertheless. David's words in Psalm 103 verse 10 were certainly applicable to Isaac here where the Lord said, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And this is certainly true for all who are in Christ. He hasn't dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. He was gracious with Isaac here, despite his sin. For all who are in Christ, the Lord is still gracious to us as well. So we see much that is similar between Isaac and his father. They're the recipient of great promises. At the same time, they're deeply flawed men. Now let's look ahead to verse 12, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter as we come to our second point, which is, Blessed are the peacemakers. Now Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, 
Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. So they named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth, for he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzath and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And so we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to them, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, as we've already observed, the Lord's blessing figures prominently here into this Genesis narrative about Isaac. This theme of how the Lord blessed Isaac shows up as early as Genesis 25:11, where we read that after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lehi Roy. And we saw earlier here in Genesis 26 how the Lord blessed Isaac in giving him the promises. We saw how the Lord blessed Isaac in terms of keeping he and Rebekah safe while they were sojourning in Gerar. And now we see the, the blessings that the Lord continues to shower and pour out upon Isaac. We find in verse 12 that his crops are blessed, even in a time of famine. Now we don't 
read ever about Abraham sowing seed and, and growing crops as a, as a farmer. Certainly he was a herdsman. But here we see it of Isaac. And Isaac sowed seed. And even in a time of famine, perhaps a time of drought, he reaps a hundredfold. That's a good return. You remember how Jesus expressed it in the, the parable of the sower as he was talking about the, the different yields of the, the seed that bore fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. A hundredfold was at the uppermost echelon in terms of the, the parable of the sower. And that's what Isaac's sowing yielded, a hundredfold. The Lord was blessing Isaac. He became rich and his wealth grew such that he became the envy of the Philistines. They saw what he had. They wanted what he had and they feared his power. And as we see, one of the ways their envy worked its way out is seen there in verse 15. As they stop up the wells that Abraham had dug. It's a lot of hard work to dig a well, especially with no power equipment or anything like that. And their envy seems to have gone beyond simply a desire to commandeer these wells and use them for the, themselves. Instead, they want to just destroy they don't want Isaac to have him, and if that means destroying everything, let's just destroy it. In other words, we don't want you to profit from these wells, and so we'll simply just take them out of commission. Abraham had gone to the trouble to dig them, but the Philistines just fill them up. And then, on top of that, Abimelech orders Isaac to go away in verse 16. Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac leaves apparently without protest, and certainly without violence. He departs from there and settles in the valley of Gerar, but his trouble is far from over. We find in verse 19 that as his servants are digging the wells there to, in the area in which he relocated, the, the local herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with him over the water that, they, that he had found when the well was dug. And the herdsmen quarrel more than once with him over the water that he found. And so they named those two wells contention and enmity, respectively, because of the animosity of the Philistines over these wells. But notice what Isaac did in all of this. In verse 22, he moves away and digs another well. Why? Well, apparently he wants to avoid the quarrel. So he got away from there. They dug a well in another place. And... His manner of speech in verse 22 makes it clear that he had finally gotten what he was looking for. He says, at last, the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. He digs a well, finds water, nobody's quarreling, a sigh of relief. The Lord has made room for us, we're in good shape now. He was looking for peace, and he found peace. And yet again, we see the Lord's blessing there in verses 23 through 25, as... Isaac moves on to Beersheba. The Lord appears to him again, tells him not to fear, and announces his presence. I am with you. And reiterates again that the promise given to Abraham is now his. That the Lord would bless him. That the Lord would multiply his descendants. The Lord blessed this peace-loving man again and again. And we see his peace-loving disposition again in his dealings with Abimelech there in, in verse 26 and, and following. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, now comes to Isaac as he had, uh, had gone down to Beersheba and Abimelech takes a journey and shows up with his advisor and his army commander 
And Isaac asks a reasonable question there in verse 27. He says, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? That's what had happened. Abimelech had sent him away. And one can hardly blame Isaac for having that assessment of the situation. They had envied him. They had stopped up the wells that Abraham had dug. They had sent him away from the country. They had quarreled with him over the wells that his own servants had dug. They're clearly no big fans of Isaac. So he says, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Why had he come? Well, he had come because he had seen that the Lord was blessing Isaac. He wanted to make a covenant with such a prosperous man so that he would be in no danger from him. And this, again, mirrors what had happened in the life of Abraham in Genesis 21 when the Abimelech of Abraham's day had seen that God was with Abraham and had come to him and wanted to be in covenant with him. Now, in this case, Isaac may have been able to quibble with the words of Abimelech. Abimelech uh, paints a pretty rosy picture of his dealings with Isaac. He said that they had done nothing but good to him, that, uh, that they had sent him away in peace. Now, certainly Abimelech had done at least some good to Isaac and Rebekah. He had commanded that no one would touch this man or his wife or they would be killed. But there was a lot of other stuff in terms of the Philistines' interaction with Isaac, right? There were wells that were stopped up. There was all kinds of stuff. Now, these things were not necessarily a matter of state policy. It may be that these were kind of rogue Philistines who were doing these things and not necessarily Abimelech himself. But Isaac, at the end of the day, doesn't cause a ruckus, right? Abimelech comes, wants to make a covenant, and Isaac doesn't make a ruckus. Instead, he makes a feast for them. They eat, they drink, and the next morning... They take the oaths of the covenant. Abimelech and his men go on their way. Isaac was a man who had endured quite a bit of provocation at the hands of these Philistines. But again and again, he does what he can to make peace. When they told him to leave, he left. When there's quarreling over the wells, he leaves behind what his own men had achieved with their hard work in digging these wells. When Abimelech wants to make a covenant... He doesn't refuse on grounds of the offenses that had come his way previously. He wants to make peace. And in this, he is a model for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans uh, that uh, if possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans chapter 12. Obviously those qualifications, if possible, and so far as it depends on you, are reminders that it's not always possible to be at peace with others. There are such things as just wars that must be fought for just causes, and that there are just causes in which we actually ought to contend with the wicked for the sake of truth and right and justice. It is a requirement for elders, on the one hand, that they be not pugnacious, but at the same time, it's required of them to hold fast to the faithful word so that they can be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And so there are certainly limits to the pursuit of peace, but still, the 
the default position of being peaceable, of seeking peace, that is the default position for us as the people of God. God himself is called the God of peace, Romans 15, 33. And so we should be peacemakers and make every effort to be at peace with all men. Now, on a practical level then, how, how do we do that? How do we seek to be at peace with all men? Well, peace is the absence of conflict. And so living in peace means living with others without conflict. But as common and unfortunate experience shows us all, conflict is only too common. Right? Quarreling, arguing, happens a lot. Children, haven't you experienced this? How often do you start a fight? How often do others start fights with you? Maybe it's a brother, sister, classmate, other kid at church. I know, these things, these things can happen. It's pretty easy to quarrel and argue and fight. And if that can easily happen to children, it can happen to grown-ups too. Grown-ups, isn't this true? It can happen, can't it? So how do we avoid quarrels and the conflicts so that we may dwell in peace? Well, sometimes quarrels and fights come as a result of misunderstanding, strong words that have been used needlessly. There was once an incident during the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London that illustrates that we need to be thoughtful about the words that we use. The situation was such that the, uh, the church had in its possession two communion tables. They had, they'd had one that I guess had used for some time, and then uh, someone uh, gave them a, a new communion table as a memorial to, to one of their ministers. And, uh, and so they had put the old communion table aside, and uh, another church had contacted them and said, hey, can we have your, your old communion table? And so the, at a deacon's meeting, they were, they were talking about this, and, and one of the deacons said, well, why don't you give them that monstrosity that's there on the, on the platform? And then a, a heated discussion ensued about this communion table that had been given in memory of one of their ministers. And they're talking about the merits of this minister as composed to others, uh, as compared to others, and so forth. And there was this, this huge back and forth until finally the, the original man who had said, why don't you give them that monstrosity on the platform, said, I'm not saying anything against Dr. Jowett. I only mean that the table is aesthetically bad. And at that point, everybody calmed down, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who sat at the head of the table in silence during all of this, pointed out how easily a strong or explosive expression can lead to such heated and useless exchanges. Right? Isn't, isn't that true? There was a strong expression used, it was misunderstood, and everybody got engulfed in this, in this big argument when the point was not the merits of a particular pastor. The point was, it just doesn't look good, right? And so a takeaway lesson from that is that we need to be careful in our usage of words. Right? Fiery language can be infuriating. Another takeaway is that we need to, to be careful to make sure that we understand what the other person is actually saying. Because if we're not communicating or understanding clearly, then we stand in danger of thinking that we 
disagree with someone and therefore in danger of getting feisty with someone when at the root of the matter there's really no disagreement at all. We need to be careful with our words and careful to make sure that we understand that we're not talking past one another. Now certainly there are times when the correct way to achieve peace is to confront, rebuke, and correct the wrongdoer. Right? Our Lord gave us instructions about this in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he listens, uh, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so, obviously, sometimes the way to achieve peace is by that means, to confront, to rebuke, to correct, and so forth. Sometimes, however, the way to achieve peace is to take a page out of Isaac's book and to walk away from the contention. That's what Isaac did, right? He does that again and again, just walks away from the contention. And we find this elsewhere in Scripture, Proverbs 19.11 A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. We're commanded in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. And how often does the Father forgive me when I'm not even conscious of having done anything wrong? How often does he forgive you when you are not conscious of having done anything wrong? anything wrong. We're to be tender-hearted and forgiving. We need to realize that strife is more dangerous to our relationships and to our own souls than we think it is. Years ago, I, uh, a pastor once said to me that the peace and unity of the church is worth a lot more than we think it is. And I think he was right. It probably is worth a lot more than we think it is. Proverbs 20, verse 3 tells us, Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Isaac, here in Genesis 26, pursued the honorable way in his dealing with the Philistines. May God give all of us grace to walk in his footsteps, and may he grant to us the harvest of that fruit that is spoken about in James 3.18. James 3.18, we read that the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now James, in James chapter 3, says that in a context where he had just proclaimed, talking about the, the difference between the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from below. And he says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits unwavering, without hypocrisy. Our calling as Christians is to live in peace with all men, so far as it depends on us. And in the wisdom that God gives by His Spirit, we need to be peaceable, gentle, and reasonable, and full of mercy. Living like that is the way to live as a peacemaker who sows in peace. And the fruit of that sowing is righteousness. That's what James says. This was the way of Isaac, sowing in peace. 
This ought to be our way as well. Now, you may well be there sitting and saying to me, yes, that's fine and good, but, but how? How do we actually do it? How do we, how do we be a peacemaker? How do we sow in peace? I would venture to say that one of the chief ways of keeping away from strife, one of the chief ways of avoiding a quarrel, is by keeping our mouth shut sometimes, right? The Proverbs point us in this direction very many times. So Proverbs 10:19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Likewise, Proverbs 17:27, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Silence can be helpful. Now sometimes, however, we have to speak. We have to give an account of our conduct or we have to address a problem for the sake of truth and for the sake of what is right. And in that situation, when we have to speak, before we speak, we need to slow down. We need to think about what to say. We need to choose our words carefully. And so we find in Proverbs 15, 28, that the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. You see the difference? The heart of the righteous ponders, thinks about how to answer. But the heart of the wicked just lets it on out. In a difficult circumstance, I think the default of the flesh is going to be just to start spewing stuff out of our mouths. That's not going to be good. So we have to slow down and ponder how to answer. And then along with controlling the tongue, we have to step behind that and control our emotions. This lies behind controlling the tongue is reining in our emotions and our spirit. Since it is indeed true, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, then this means that we have to dig a little deeper than simply biting on our tongues and controlling our words. We have to get to the level of our hearts. As Proverbs 4.23 tells us, we have to watch our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. If we can start to watch over our hearts and control our emotions in the various turbulent situations that we face, then that paves the way for controlling our tongues. And that paves the way, in turn, for the peace to which we must aspire. And this kind of self-control reigning in our spirits is extolled in Proverbs 16.32 where it is said that he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who captures city. There's something wonderful about the self-control. Controlling our spirit, being slow to anger. And this kind of self-control then leads to peace as Proverbs 15.18 tells us. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms the dispute. And slow to anger cools things down, calms the dispute, brings peace. Now, from all that we can see here in the text, Isaac was a man who ruled his spirit, right? a man who was slow to anger, a man who was able to calm a dispute. He seemed to be a man who understood the truth of Proverbs 17:14, that the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. And therefore he abandoned the quarrel before it broke out. 
And if we would walk in the footsteps of Isaac, we need to put into practice those words of James 1.19, which kind of sums up so much of what we have spoken of this morning. James 1.19 says, Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now Isaac, again, as we've seen, is a man whom God blessed over and over again. And even in the midst of his peacemaking, he is blessed. It is not merely coincidental that we find in verse 32, on the very day that he had made that covenant with Abimelech, Isaac's servants come in and they tell him about the well which they had dug, in which they had struck water. This is further evidence of God's good hand of blessing upon Isaac. God's grace continuing to flow to him and pursue him, even despite his sins and his shortcomings. And just as the grace of God never left Isaac, neither will the grace of God abandon any who belong to Christ. The promise of the new covenant is that of Jeremiah 32:40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That's a new covenant promise that he will not turn away from doing good to us. Just like the good that he was doing to Isaac continually, over and over again. That's good news. And so, let that be a comfort to you in the midst of the storms that you face. Let it be all the more reason for you to hold tightly to the birthright that is yours in Christ. Instead of exchanging it for the things of the world, things which fade away all too quickly and bring no lasting peace or satisfaction. Now, it's interesting that this account of Isaac here in chapter 26 is framed both before and after by the godlessness of Esau. At the end of Genesis 25, we saw how Esau despised his birthright and sold it. And this chapter, in a way, shows us the greatness of that birthright that he despised and sold for a bowl of stew. And what is also worthy of our notice is that this chapter ends in such a way, again, as to frame it with the godlessness of Esau. We see there in the last couple of verses of chapter 26, Esau marrying these two Hittite women that they bring grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now it's already been made clear in the book of Genesis that the women of Canaan would be troubled. For Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, very clear that he didn't want Isaac to marry one of them. But Esau marries not one, but two of them. This is a godless man, and his actions show it. He proves by his actions that this birthright is not something that he values at all. And so as we close this morning, let me just leave you with a question. What about you? What about you? Do your actions show that you value the birthright of being a child of God through Jesus Christ? Or do they show that, on the whole, regardless of what you say, it is of no great value to you to be in covenant with God and a recipient of His mercies and blessings? It is ultimately by your fruits that you will be known. It's not by our works that we are saved, but it is by our works that 
the position of our hearts will be known. Jesus spoke of the general resurrection on the last day as being a situation in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so, do you value your birthright of being in Christ? Esau didn't value his birthright, and his life clearly showed it. And so if you value your birthright of being in Christ, then seek the grace of God to live like it, never despise it, and never trade it for the passing pleasures of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to realize the precious worth and value of being in Christ that we would never despise it. And Lord, we ask that you would give us great wisdom, that we can pursue the ways of peace as Isaac did here. We thank you, Father, that this passage points us to Christ in that he is that seed through whom all nations, and even we ourselves, are blessed. We give you praise, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.